Amen. Nothing worse than somebody making a massive noise in the middle of a prayer. <sighs> anyway, good morning. Let's just move on from that, right? Good to see everybody here this morning. We're going to continue in 1 Corinthians, getting back into it. We were gone last week. My family and I are on vacation. Um, it was a great time. Um, spent it with my family uh, to uh, just kind of get away. And I think it was probably the first time my brother, my sister, and my parents and I have been together um, in probably a couple of years. Um, and so every time we get a chance to do that, we definitely want to do that. But we missed you guys. We missed church. We missed spending time with our church family, uh, worshiping together. And so it's good to be back. Um, just a little bit of a background as far as remembering 1 Corinthians because uh, I know uh, Daniel went through Philippians, or a passage in Philippians, last week. So to kind of get back into the groove of things, um, only a few years after Paul planted the church in Corinth, they began to have some serious issues. Some things were coming back to Paul. He was hearing through the grapevine about divisions within the church that were creating factions that focused more on the messenger and less on the message. And this is the famous passage or famous verse in chapter 1, where I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Their focus was on all of these teachers. And these teachers were godly teachers. They were solid teachers in the truths of God. And yet, the members of the church of Corinth started to quarrel over personal preferences. I like the way Paul preaches. I like the way Apollo preaches. Well, you know, I follow the red letters in the Bible. I follow Jesus. Not realizing the red letters, if you made it real, would be the entire Bible. Because all the Bibles are the word, all the words of the Bible are the words of Christ. But they were quarreling over personal preferences, not whether the truths of God were actually being taught. That was what was dividing them. But Paul reminds them that the church's faith rests in the power of God and is revealed through the gospel message of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, not by the eloquent speech, uh, speeches of teachers, not by the best speakers around. For they are just words. It's about, it's about God's message. That's where the power resides in Paul and Apollos and Cephas and Christ and then in their, in their teaching. And in case they don't quite understand Paul's point that it's about the message and not the messenger, he uses the church as a case study. According to the standards of the world, the church in Corinth, and we could probably say us too today, is foolish and weak. We're made up of a bunch of nobodies. That's what is really being said. But that's how God works. He uses the nobodies of this world to shame the somebodies of this world, the weak of this world to shame the strong, and the foolish of this world to shame the wise. Why? So that He, God, would get the glory and not us. The church of Corinth was missing this. They were all about themselves and what they preferred, and were missing, no, the gospel, God. Remember who you are. That God sustains us as his church. He preserves us. He perseveres us to the end. And so our faith rests not in our own power, 
but in the power of God. And it's good to be reminded that 1 Corinthians is written to believers, to established Christians whom Paul assumes would be growing or they should be growing in their faith and knowledge of God. And so his words are also applicable to those of us who are in the church today. Paul has already stated that there are two different kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And in our passage today, he's going to break those two things down. What exactly are these wisdoms and how do they affect the church in Corinth and how do they affect us in general as God's people today? So he begins in verse 6 by making a clear distinction between the wisdom that he and these other godly teachers have spoken to the church, that is the wisdom of God, and the wisdom of this age, or what he has previously called the wisdom of man. And when Paul speaks of the wisdom of God, He's using that phrase as a description of the gospel message. So in order to understand the gospel, then we need to know why the gospel is necessary. Humanity, both you and I, by nature are sinful. Sin is not simply doing bad things. It is rebellion against the commands and desires of a holy God. Sin is an offense to God, and because He is a righteous judge, our sinful rebellion must receive its rightful justice. Or as I like to say, or I've heard it, actually I won't take credit for it, our sin against an infinite God is an infinite sin, and so it deserves an infinite punishment. It's important to remember that sinning against a holy and infinite God is not the same as sinning against a fellow human being. There are levels of justice and punishment when I sin against a human being, right? I, I don't, I'm not put to death for lying, right? There's, there's certain levels But sinning against God, no matter what the sin is, deserves the same punishment. That is eternal separation from God, from His mercy and from His grace, or what the Bible calls eternal death. That is how serious our sin against God is. And so because we have all sinned, because we have all followed our natural inclination to sin against God, we all deserve eternal death. So what do we do about it? What can we do about it? Is there anything in our power that we can do about it? And the answer to that question distinguishes between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. How you respond to sin determines which wisdom you are following. Does that make sense? Here's the problem, and the solution is either this or it's this. Now we're going to get into one works, one doesn't. And I hope you know which one works and which one doesn't, if you've been here long enough, okay? Now, the wisdom of God, the gospel message, says that there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to heal the division between ourselves and a holy God because of our sin. He can have no sin in His presence. There's no amount of good works or nice things that we can accomplish in our life in order to tip the scales in our favor because there are no scales in heaven. There's no scales of good and bad. 
You either are sinless or you're sin-filled before God. There's no in-between. But in His wisdom, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to us from heaven. He lived the perfect and sinless life that we couldn't, and He died the death upon the cross that we deserve. He paid the price of death so that those who believe and trust in Him would be forgiven and live eternally in His presence. He removed the barrier of sin, not us. That is the wisdom of God. That is the gospel message. He saved us from His wrath because we couldn't. But without His power to change our hearts, it's not only that we couldn't, but it's that we wouldn't. If we were left to our own devices, we would always reject God. We would always reject the gospel message. Because the wisdom of God, the gospel message, is in stark contrast to the wisdom of man. For the wisdom of this age and the wisdom of the rulers of this age leads only to eternal death. Or as Paul says, they are doomed to pass away. They are doomed to perish forever in hell and eternal death. Why? Because they reject the gospel message in favor of their own wisdom. The wisdom of man is a self-reliance to save themselves. They reject Christ in favor of their own logic or their own reason or power or wisdom. They reject Christ because they believe they can save themselves or they reject Christ because they don't believe that they need him. I'm good. I don't need Christ. I don't need him to do anything. But in the end, their wisdom dooms them to eternal death, a living death that never ends. And so what are these two different kinds of wisdom? Wisdom of God, the gospel, and the wisdom of man. Or as Paul says, foolishness. It does nothing. So not only is Paul saying to them, but we taught you the wisdom of God, but he is also describing that wisdom as a secret and hidden wisdom. Now, before we all go cultish on this, like only those who were behind the curtain know the real truth, don't, don't read into that. It's, we have to understand, what does Paul really mean by this phrase, secret and hidden? Because it can be very easily misunderstood. And so, eh, we don't have quite time, okay? Write this down, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. I want you to look that up later. You can read through this, um, that passage. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. And in that passage, Paul speaks about the wisdom of God, and he uses similar language. But he talks about the gospel, the wisdom of God, is hidden. It's a mystery. Not because it can't be known, but because God didn't reveal it until the incarnation of Christ, until he came to earth 2,000 years ago. That's what he means by secret and hidden. God withheld it from knowledge from the human race until Christ came, and then he revealed the truth. So the mystery that is salvation in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says the mystery that is salvation uh, the mystery that is salvation is not for the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. That's, that's the hidden, 
the secret thing. Ethnicity does not determine who is in or who is out of the family of God, but faith in Christ. The Jews had forgotten that. Remember, the Jews were made God's people by God, and they felt like they were the ones who had the corner on the market of God. And then God sends his son Christ and goes, yeah, no, I'm going to bring in all the Gentiles, you know, all those dirty people, (laughs) the unclean people that aren't Jewish. I'm going to bring them in and I'm going to graft them in. Ethnicity does not determine salvation. Christ determines it. Now, there were hints of the gospel message throughout the Old Testament. The Jews should have seen it. They should have picked up on it, but they didn't because it wasn't fully understood and revealed until Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then it all became clear. And the rulers and the people of this age, those who rely upon themselves for salvation from God's wrath, did not and cannot understand the gospel message. This is These are the Sadducees and the Pharisees and and even people walking the street who rejected Christ. Anyone who rejected Christ while he was still on this earth, that's who he's talking about. Those people, and they still are here today, people who reject Christ. Whether they are wealthy or poor or influential or not, they are rejecting Christ. They rely upon themselves. But if they had understood in Jesus' time, that Jesus was the Messiah, then they never would have crucified him. And those today, they would not reject Christ as the Savior. But to them, to those who are embracing the wisdom of man, God's wisdom is foolishness. They cannot imagine that their sins against God are so grievous. What's the big deal? So I lied to God. Who cares? I do it all the time to my neighbor. Well, your neighbor is not the creator of the universe who can swipe you away with the breath of his eyelid. He is God, and he's perfect, and he is holy. They can't imagine that their sins against God are so grievous or that God would even send his own son to take the penalty for their sins. What people call today divine child abuse. And they tend to leave out the fact that Christ willingly went. He willingly gave up his life to pay the penalty for me and for you and for anyone who believes. But to the world, that's all crazy talk. You guys are all nuts. doesn't make any sense. It's foolishness. But as it is written... And Paul quotes this, no eye, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love them, love him. This is taken from Isaiah 64, chapter, uh, chapter 64, verse 4, where the prophet Isaiah alludes to the craziness of God's coming down upon Mount Sinai to meet with his people. And on that mountain, God reveals himself and his character, a holy God meeting with a very unholy people. That's craziness. What other God does such a thing? Well, the answer is none. (laughs) No God does that. And yet God did. God is a a one-of-a-kind God, a God which makes no sense to all the other nations of the world, which is why when they look at Israel and who they are and what God has commanded them, they are a peculiar people. 
They are set apart. They are different and are to look different and to act different and to speak different and to be different from the world around them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is making the same statement, but instead of Mount Sinai, he's pointing to the cross of Christ. What God did through Christ on the cross reveals himself and his character. No greater love has anyone than this than to give up his life for his friend. A holy God making an unholy people in his sight. What other God does that? No other God does that. He's a one of a kind God. A God which makes no sense to the rulers and the people of this age. They reject and do not know God. Don't hear misunderstand God. They reject God. They know fully who he is in the sense of he is holy. It's just nonsense. So it's not that they misunderstand God. They do not know God. Because his wisdom, his gospel message is foolishness to them. It is a hidden wisdom it's hidden from them and it's being made known and revealed only to those who love god did you catch that what god has prepared for those who love him to those who agape god to those who have a deep and rooted affection for god so how did God reveal this gospel? Not through human effort, but through his spirit. Who knows the depths of my heart better than my own spirit? Do you know, do you know what I'm thinking right now? Do I know the greatest desires of your heart? Well, no, but your spirit does. My spirit knows my own heart. Who knows the depths and recesses of the thoughts and desires of God better than his spirit? Now, we have to take a little bit of a detour here because we need to make sure again just like with hidden and secret that we understand what he means here what it is what the spirit of god means when he uses those words because we have to make a clear distinction between what paul is talking about with the spirit of man versus the spirit of god the spirit of man what is it we would think of it jiminy cricket our conscience right we might describe it that it's that small voice within us that, that debates right from wrong, you know, those kinds of things. No one else knows that, right? It was going, aside, going on inside my head, but my spirit does, my conscience does. That is not what, how he's using that to speak of God. The spirit of God is not the consciousness of God. Verse 12 tells us that the spirit of God is a person, one who is from God. There is one God with three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit does what none of us can. He comprehends and knows the depths and the thoughts of God. The Holy Spirit of God works in us so that, in verse 12, we might understand the things freely given us by God. And what are these things? Well, the context is, the gospel message. It's all going back to that. The truths of the gospel message, the truths of God's salvation for his people is revealed to the church, to the people of God 
by the Spirit of God. And so Paul concludes this section in verse 13 by saying, and we impart this, that is the gospel message, we impart the gospel message in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul's not an educated person. What it's saying is that these words are not mine, people. Corinth, listen to my listen to me. You're all about preference. Will you stop it and actually look at the message? Because it's not about me. This is a divine message of the gospel message of God that saved you. The teachings of godly teachers such as Paul and Apollos were words that were taught to them by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, they would have rejected the gospel and they would have taught falsely. For no one can know and understand, let alone teach the gospel message without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the truths of God, he says, are spiritual truths, not worldly truths. And only the spiritual, only those who are taught by the indwelling Holy Spirit can comprehend spiritual things, can comprehend the thoughts of God, can comprehend the wisdom of God, can comprehend the gospel of God. Paul is trying to get them to understand. He's, I mean, you hear every single week that we look at these passages, this is not about you. This is about God. You did not save yourselves. God saved you. And now you heard the gospel and you understood it. Why? Because God taught you. He showed you. He gave you comprehension and knowledge of who, what the gospel is and who God is. God changed your heart so that you would believe. So stop using my name in vain. <laughs> That's Mark's version of how Paul would respond to that. Stop talking about your preferences. Stop talking about me and talk about the gospel. And then Paul uses three phrases in this, this entire passage to describe the Christian believer in Corinth. He's trying to remind them who you are. They truly are believers. These aren't unbelievers. He's not questioning their faith. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. He calls them mature in verse 6. He calls them those who love God in verse 9 and those who are spiritual in verse 13. Now, the word mature means perfect in the sight of God. Those who love God are those who have a deep affection for God. And those who are spiritual are those who know and understand the truths of God. These are in stark contrast with those of this age. They are those who are immature, imperfect, and unholy in the sight of God. They do not love God, and they have a deep hatred for God and His truths. Or as he says in Romans they suppress the truth of God, the gospel message, in unrighteousness, in their unrighteousness. They hear it, they under, understand it to a certain degree, and they reject it in their own unrighteousness, in their own unholiness. And then he says that they are unspiritual, those of this age. They do not know or understand the thoughts and plans and desires of God because they don't have the Spirit of God in and with them. They are like a boat with a rudder going whichever way the current takes them. Paul is reminding us and reminding the church in Corinth that this is an exclusive gospel message. The gospel message is very exclusive. 
Every human being faces the same problem. We all, remember I started off, this is the problem. We are separated from God because of our sin against Him. And then there are two distinct groups who follow two very different types of wisdom. One, one trusts the wisdom of this age, rejecting the gospel message for its foolishness, while the other trusts the wisdom of God, knowing and accepting the gospel message. The first can't handle the truths of God, and so they reject them. The second can accept them because they realize their sinfulness and they believe. Now, Paul is reminding the church that if we believe in the gospel, if we believe in the gospel message, it's only because the Holy Spirit has taught and revealed its truth to us. He has revealed that the foolishness of God is wiser than man and that the weakness of God is stronger than man. Or let's make it personal. Put your own name in there. The foolishness of God is wiser than Mark and his wisdom, quote unquote, and his weakness is stronger than my strength. We as the church know and love God because he has given us his spirit. He is with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Paul is reminding the church of their identity. This is who you are. This is, this is who you are. Why? Because God has revealed himself to you. And to use the words about the indwelling Holy Spirit, the God, the Spirit is with you, constantly teaching you, guiding you, opening your eyes, not just to the truth of the gospel message, but revealing the character of who God is to you as you grow, as you mature, as you become even more spiritual. Not better, don't hear better. Better than everybody else. No, no, spiritual in a sense of as we know God more, we know God more. We become more spiritual. What are his desires? What are his wants? We know and love God because he has given us himself. Any glory, any glory that we receive from God is because Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, paid the price for our sins, meaning he gets the credit. He gets the glory. Not Paul, not Apollos, not me, not you, not the church all around the world or Elm Creek, the church. God gets the credit. Paul is saying, lay aside your preferences. Realize who you really are and how petty that is. Don't look at the messenger. Look at the message because that message changed you and it saved you because God saw it fit to teach you and to change you and to open your hearts so that you would accept and not reject the gospel message. What kind of God does that? Our God. He saves us, as I say, despite. He saved me despite me. He saved me despite me, and I cannot take any credit. Any credit for that. I think it's fitting that we are going to communion this morning because 
This is a chance for us to praise God for His glory, to give Him praise and honor that He is worthy of. Now, when we, when we, when we sit together, we grab the cup, we grab the bread, and we all sit together, there's that, there's that time, there's a few minutes where we can really sit and, and in a sense, stew and remember who we are as God's church, but also to glorify and praise Him. It's a chance for us to confess our sins, even as God's people, and pray that God would, God would change our, continue to change our hearts so that we would better reflect His glory and the truths of His gospel to an unbelieving world. And then thirdly, I want us to remember as we're taking this, this communion, this is more than just a drink and a food. This is a remembrance service. This is a reminder of Christ saying, do you know who you are? You are a child of God. You are mine. You are mine and I love you. You are my own possession. You are my church. You are my people. And I chose you, not because you're perfect, set that aside, but because I love you. What greater love is there? So sit in that and praise Him and glorify Him for this. And remember, remember who you are. Which is why we, we don't, we ask if you, you join us, that you be a believer, that you be a part of the family of God. You, it's open communion. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. But if you are not a believer in Christ, or I would even dare say if you have sin, unconfessed sin that you refuse to repent of, then we ask that you stay aside. Happens all the time. No one's going to look down on you. Refrain from taking, because this is a serious, serious thing that we do as his church to remember what Christ did on the cross. Remember that through Christ's sacrifice, we became his people. That he gave us his glory not ours. And so when you are ready, as God's people, we'll form a line in the back. You grab a cup, you grab the bread or the cracker, and then you come and you sit down and then praise Him, confess your sins, remind yourself who you are, not because you think that, but because God says it. Give Him the praise and glory and honor that He is due, and then as a church family together, we will remember Christ's sacrifice and remember the truths of the gospel message together. So when you are ready, come forward.